Uh, well, hello and good afternoon, podcasters, and welcome to a festive Christmas-themed podcast um, for us, the Herbert Smith Banking Litigation Team, uh, joined by my co-host, Kerry. Hello, Kerry. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, John. I do love your hats, berry green or holly green, I suppose I should say. Well, thank you very much. Likewise, also enjoying your cracker hat. Thank you very much indeed, free of charge. And we were joined, we are joined today, in fact, um, by a, a collection of guests who've appeared on the show, my show, our show, throughout the last uh, year. Introducing, in order of appearance, uh, the Christmas Carol of Superstar Associates, Scott Warren. Hello, Scott. Hi, John. Uh, Tom Wire, remember Tom, down to the wire. Hello, John. Uh, Catherine Bagg, do you want to tell your joke, Catherine? <laughs> Maybe later. And Eleanor Cornwash. Hello, Eleanor. And uh, joined uh, from behind the glass by not James uh, this month, but by Erin. Welcome, Erin. I'm getting a wave through the glass from Erin. Uh, now, Kerry, I understand you've decided to add some festive fun to this special edition of our podcast. Uh, yes, indeed, John. So we're going to play a little game of true or false. During the course of this podcast, each of us will share a Christmas or festival-related lore from around the globe. Our guests and audience at home will have to guess whether the lore is real or a work of fiction. A bit like the conversation I had with my kids outside the low-rent Santa's Grotto at the school Christmas fair last weekend. So, John, I think you're going to get us in the holiday spirit by opening this Christmas production. Yes, indeed. Now... Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. Oh, sorry, wrong script. Uh, hang on a second. Ah, yes, uh, law. Um, right, true or false, gang. Um, in Scotland, until 1871, this is a double one, Christmas Day was not a holiday. And until 1974, Boxing Day was not a holiday. True or false? Uh, false. Wrong. Um, it was a holiday until 1640, and it was banned as part of the Reformation. So uh, it ceased to be a holiday till 1871, when it became bank holiday, and uh, Boxing Day caught up in 1974. Oh, Bonus, who was number one on this day in 1974? I think it was Barry White first, last everything. You can check that. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, uh, on with the festive frivolity. Scott, I think we're opening with you, with some bank. Why are you all smirking? I think you are, John. Yeah, that's, right, that's exactly right. So, in stave one, we begin our play not in Scrooge's counting house, but in Italy, nonetheless, or more specific, the province of Pizarro Avenue, to look at a recent decision considering the thorny question of capacity in the context of ISTA disputes. This is the case of Dexia Crediot and the Provincia de Pesaro Urbano, which is an Italian bank applied for summary judgment, uh, for declarations that certain interest rate swaps entered into with an Italian municipal authority were valid. So this case is the latest in a line of authorities looking at swaps transactions entered into by foreign municipal authorities, in which parties have sought to set aside the trades on the basis that they were invalid under foreign laws alleged to be applicable to the contracts. Yes, yeah, so the English court has had the opportunity to consider this issue a number of times in the past couple of years. Uh, so just to make the scenario clear, these are disputes arising out of pre-global financial crisis, the 2008 financial crisis era swaps, uh, where the contract is governed by English law, but it's the foreign law that's relevant to whether or not the party had capacity to enter into the transaction. Precisely. And this is a super important point for contracts with Italian municipal authorities because of a, uh, some might say, humbug decision coming out of the Italian Supreme Court in May 2020, around 17 years after the first swap in this case was entered into. 
Ah, you are of course referring to the ghost of Christmas yet to come, the Catholica case. <laughs> you, are, you are like a spirit appearing to predict my case update, Carrie. Oh, sorry, Scott, please do continue. <laughs> Don't worry, I love it. We are like a Marley and Marley double act. That's a reference to the Muppet version of uh, Christmas Carol for those of you who didn't catch it. Um, and if you did, excellent film with Michael Caine. Um, anyway, you are correct. In the Catholica uh, decided in 2020, the Italian Supreme Court declared that a pre-2008 Italian law government swap between a bank and a local authority was invalid because the transaction contained features which the Italian local authorities were not permitted to agree to. In the present case, the local authority relied on Catolica uh, to argue that the transactions were invalid. Bank then therefore sought declarations from the English court that the transactions were valid. And in this instance, the High Court agreed with the bank. And principally, this was for two reasons. Firstly, the transaction documents were plainly governed by English law in accordance with the Rome Convention because they made an express choice of English law, which therefore could not be displaced. Secondly, the court held that there was no prospect of the municipal authority successfully arguing that it lacked capacity to enter into the swaps, which was a question governed by Italian law. Even assuming that Catolica represented the correct position under Italian law, the court held that the swaps did not contain the particular features which were said to make the transactions invalid in the Catolica case, i.e. that the swaps did not have the effect of creating indebtedness, and they did not require the approval of a provincial council. I think, uh, Scott, um, although we don't really have time to go into it just now, um, Catolica is very topical at the moment, uh, and there's been a subsequent High Court decision which has gone the other way, finding that the um, relevant uh, Italian uh, authority lacked capacity and the swaps were therefore void. Correct, John. That's the case of Banca Intesa San Paolo and the Commune de Venezia. It's an interesting judgment with some fairly scathing criticism of Catolica. However, ultimately, the court felt that an Italian court would have found the swaps to be void as a result of the restrictions in Catolica. And so the bank's application seeking declarations that swaps were valid failed. If any of our listeners would like to compare and contrast these two ISTA decisions, then please do let us know. In the meantime, you can read more about the Provincia de Pizarro case in our blog update, and there will be a link in the show notes. It's now my turn for my Christmas or festive themed law. So team, what do we think? We're over to Hong Kong for this one, where I spent some time. Do we think it's illegal to obstruct or prevent a clergyman or other minister from operating in a place of divine worship? Should you do so, in my hypothetical law, or not, it would carry a sentence of two years imprisonment. If that's true, Scott, my Christmas day is ruined. I think it is true, albeit I think the sentence is wrong. Yeah, I think it'd be like a penalty would be death or something. It is indeed true. So don't. So if you're, yeah, you're gonna pull any stunts in Hong Kong, don't go interrupting your Christmas service. So keep an eye on Nana. And you're right. It is a two-year sentence. Thank you, Scott. Especially for those Italian cases. If anybody wants to contact us for ease, we'll refer to them as the Venezia case and the Pizarro case. Now. Uh, podcasters in a Black Friday two for one deal. I believe Kerry has another ISDA case for us. Over to you, Kerry. That's right, John. So <clears throat> another summary judgment is the case for you. Uh, this one's called Macquarie Bank and Feelin Energy Group. Um, I'm feeling your way there. <laughs> yeah, just about trying to make sure I don't stumble over my words, Scott. 
Um, I selected this case for today's podcast because it provides guidance on a question of contractual interpretation of the 2002 is the master agreement. Specifically, what constitutes a valid notice of an event of default for the purposes of Section 5A1. Um, and is this one on the naughty list, Kerry, or the nice list from the perspective of financial institutions? So I would say the nice list, mm. as it's a reassuring one for banks. <clears throat> it highlights that when there is a dispute over the amount or the currency of a swap, this does not necessarily mean that the default notice is automatically invalid, so long as it complies with the contractual provisions in the transaction documentation. The facts of this one are a bit complex, aren't they, Kerry? Could, could you possibly give us a high-level summary, just enough to put the case in context? I'll do my best for you all. Very good. <laughs> so, the dispute involved a US dollar and czar FX swap. So that's South African rand, Kerry? Uh, yes, it is indeed. Um, well done, John. Gold star for you. Um, uh, the counterparty failed to make payment, uh, which led to the bank serving a default notice. The notice explained that a failure to remedy this and to make payment in the time uh, specified would amount to an event of default under Section 5A1. The counterparty disputed the strike price for the trade and didn't make any payment at all. The bank said that this triggered the early termination provisions, which the counterparty denied, and then the bank went ahead and brought an application for summary judgment on the termination issue, pending the resolution of the issue as to the correct strike price. So the case turned on whether or not the default notice served by the bank was valid? Exactly. Uh, was the default notice valid so as to trigger the early termination of the swap? And the court held that it was. So I won't get into the detail of the court's contractual construction exercise on this podcast, as you might want to boil me with my own pudding if I do. Um, the practical takeaway is that the court was satisfied that it was not necessary for the amount stated in the default notice to be correct for the notice itself to be valid, rejecting the counterparty's contention that the default notice required a precise and accurate statement of the amount due. The court suggested that this would result in a number of improbable consequences. For instance, if there were very minor mistakes or typing errors, it would invalidate the notice. Uh, this was not workable in the court's opinion. On the other hand, it would have been immediately clear to the counterparty receiving the default notice that the bank was complaining of a failure to make payment due to it under the swap, that the counterparty had made no payment, and that on the face of the documents, the company was obliged to pay a sum to cure the default, although the exact sum was disputed. This was, in the court's opinion, sufficient to make the default notice valid, and therefore the court found in favour of the bank on the termination issue. Uh, as crisp as a late December morning, Kerry. Thank you. Well done for wrapping that one up so succinctly. Um, no steak of holly through the heart for you. Uh, that sounds a little darker, I think, than intended. Um, uh, if you read the book, you'll appreciate the pun. But for now, uh, do you have any festive law to share with us, Kerry? Top Scots, if you can. Um, I do. I've done my homework and I have my festive law. So, true or false? <clears throat> In the UK, if your outdoor Christmas light display is deemed to be excessive or directed towards a neighbour's house in an intrusive or annoying way, then you could be found in breach of light trespass legislation. I really hope that's false. I think it's true. I live in a what you call, protected sky area. I think it's true. So, 
False, sort of. I should do that bit then, go on. <laughs> um, we do not have light trespass laws as such, but if the artificial light is too bright, it could be classed as a statutory nuisance, which is what you're hoping for, I think, John. Um, I was thinking of statutory <clears throat> nuisance, I have to say, but I also thought you'd come up with a new concept of light trespass. Well, well, so stay tuned, you are predicting the future. Uh, so anyway, just to say, natural light is not covered by statutory nuisance laws, but I don't think covering your house in candles is a prudent alternative. Um, but apparently, light trespass as a law does exist in New Jersey. Who knew? Uh, Google knew. Google knew. Well, thank you very much. What a cracker that was, Kerry. Uh, let's move on, though, to Tom. Tom, hello. Uh, I believe you've been recording a lot of investment time against a new code for a pos- podcast pun. That's right, John. And a very Kerry Christmas to you, Ms. Morgan. Good. It's go. good to be back. It's <coughs> my second podcast appearance, and what an occasion to do it. Uh, I'm laughing and crying in the same breath. Something you're not able to do because I think you had a lot of beans for lunch, didn't you? For real, John. For real. Uh, So the case I'm going to cover for you today is MUR Shipping BC and RTI Limited. Now that's right, MUR. So not gold, not frankincense, but myrrh. So this was a court of appeal decision concerning whether a ship owner was entitled to rely on a force majeure clause in a shipping contract where its charterer's parent company became subject to US sanctions. So... Christmas Day or not, I suppose they didn't see three ships come sailing in. So this case was in a non-financial context, but having worked in this podcast for three years, I think the uh, I, I snow the drill by now, and my sneaking suspicion is that you're going to tell us uh, why it's of interest to podcasters. I see what you did there, John. So correct, we're talking about it for two main reasons. So firstly, it provides a good example of how the court will approach construction of the wording of a force majeure clause, which is helpful from a general contract law perspective, particularly against the current geopolitical environment. Now, secondly, I'm sure our listeners will be very keen to hear the legal remedies available if their Christmas shopping or Christmas shipping has been delayed because of US sanctions. He came, he thawed, he conquered. Very good, Tom. Right, so are you going to tell us briefly about the facts? Of course, Kerry. So ship owners contracted with charterers to carry shipments of bauxite to Ukraine to be paid for in US dollars. And before you ask, I have no idea what bauxite is, much like myrrh. The contract provided that neither party would be liable for loss, damage, delay, or failure in performance caused by a force majeure event, defined as an event which cannot be overcome by reasonable endeavours on the part of the party affected. Now, the charterer's parent company became subject to US sanctions, which meant the charterer faced difficulties in making payment in US dollars and a likely delay. The charterer offered to pay in euros and to bear any additional costs or exchange rate losses, but this was rejected by the ship owners. So the question for the court was whether reasonable endeavours required the ship owners to accept payment in a non-contractual currency. A bit like when I asked for presents, my mum gives me socks. Now, the Court of Appeal overturned the decision of the High Court and held that the ship owner was not entitled to rely on the force majeure clause, saying something like, you better watch out, you better not cry. That's not the case. Now, the decision turned on the wording of the clause, which the Court of Appeal said required the ship owner to accept a proposal involving payment in an alternative currency which did not extend to full contractual performance, but which achieved exactly the same result. This was because it fulfilled the underlying purpose of the relevant obligation and it caused no detriment to the ship owner. And notably, if these criteria had not been met, the ship owner would have been entitled to rely on the clause. Uh, so it seems like the court took a pretty pragmatic view there. I, do, I was just thinking about your, sco- your sock analogy, and it would be being given a pair of socks and then like an envelope of cash, maybe. That's the equivalent here. Like for like swap, depending on the value of the present, of course. Um, anyway, as always, there's a link to our blog post on that case in the show notes. Uh, so do go ahead and take a look if you are interested. 
Uh, but on to more important business, Tom, are you ready to make us idle people merry with your Christmas-related law? I am, Kerry. So, true or false, it is illegal to sell Christmas crackers to persons younger than 12 years old. Team? That is true. True. That sounds true. It sounds like health and safety gone mad. That is true. Uh, LBC's own Scott Warren railing against health and safety there. The Pyrotechnic Articles Safety Regulations 2015 state that you cannot sell a pyrotechnic article on the market to a person younger than 12, which is terrible news for my nascent cracker business outside the local primary school. Uh, now, I can't offer you Santa's sack this Christmas, but what I can do is offer you a bag. Over to you, Catherine. Thanks for that introduction, Tom. Uh, for the Voice of Doubt podcast, as Catherine's surname is, is Bag. Tom was not being offensive or intentionally offensive anyway. So the problem with Tom's name, on the other hand, is that it's very similar to Tim. So I've been desperately trying to restrain myself during this recording from referring to him as the mini-hero of our festive favourite novella. Uh, I'm not going to try to compete with Tom uh, in the pun department, so I will move on to our next case quickly which is on the equally festive topic of letters of credit in the context of trade finance disputes. Seasonal. <laughs> the case is Haytex Bramshire and Unity Trade Capital. In a nutcracker shell, this was a case in which a trade between an international seller and buyer was facilitated by a letter of credit, which was issued in favour of the seller by an English domiciled third party. The letter of credit was expressly irrevocable and incorporated the commonly used code in the Uniform Customs and Practice for Documentary Credit 600, catchily called, or helpfully called UCP 600, published by the International Chamber of Commerce. Don't think me sad, but there have, I've noticed in the past couple of years, been an increasing number of um, court decisions, both English and foreign, about UCP 600 uh, and other such um, standard foreign trade documentation. Um, yes, there's been a bit of a mm. trend. And it's interesting to see how the law is developing across the globe, particularly given the international nature of these disputes. In the present case, one of the key issues was whether or not the documents presented as part of the demand were compliant with the terms of the letter of credit. The first point to pull out is that the court really emphasised that letters of credit are widely used documents and they benefit from a remarkable degree of international standardisation. I think that the need for standardisation is important. Unusual constructions of the wording are unlikely to result in the certainty needed for documents which are used so widely. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I think that principle clearly underpins the court's approach here. I'm frogging your throat, Catherine. <laughs> Mistletoe. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was really good. <clears throat> Turning to the court's analysis of whether the demand was, was compliant, I won't get snowed under the precise competing constructions. Ultimately, the court preferred the beneficiary's reading of the letter of credit, holding that the issuer was liable. I'll unwrap two key findings behind this conclusion. Firstly, the court thought that the issuer's construction would have resulted in the letter of credit becoming <coughs> revocable. This would have created a fundamental internal inconsistency in the terms of the letter of credit and a very significant departure from the UCP 600. Secondly, the court rejected the issuer's proposition that the letter of credit incorporated the issuer's own credit norms. The issuer tried to argue that these modified the letter of credit and prevailed over the UCP 600. The reason for rejecting this argument was a matter of basic contract law. In essence, the court held that the incorporation of the credit norms would entail a dramatic departure from the scheme of the UCP <coughs> and from the commercial essence of a letter of credit. On that basis, 
very clear notice of incorporation would have to be given. You think here of the red hand from Thornton and Shoe Lane parking or originally from Sperling and Bradshaw, Lord Denning's red hand? Exactly, and the court specifically <coughs> mentioned Sperling and Bradshaw. The notice in the present case was not nearly sufficient and therefore the argument failed. Taking a step back and thinking about the trage- trajectory of cases in this area, which John mentioned, I think it's interesting to see the courts continuing to favour an international focus on the question of interpretation. On that point, uh, Catherine, can I make a quick plug for our Jibfil article on this subject? Uh, what, Kerry? Our Jibfil article. Oh, that, yes. Of yes. course, it's your podcast. <laughs> well, our podcast, our right, podcast. John? Our podcast. Our podcast. Well, just to say that we'll include a link to our article on inter- very snappily titled Interpreting ICC Standardised Rules in Trade Finance Disputes, Courts Take an International Perspective. Uh, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes and also a link to our blog post on Catherine, Catherine's case. And with that, shall we stocking up on our next round of legislative true or false? Back to you, Catherine. Yes, so my question for everybody is the Holy Days and Fasting Act 1551, which requires citizens to specifically walk to church on Christmas Day, is still in force. True or false? I think that's got to be false. I think it's been repealed. Yeah, you're right, John, it's been repealed. In 1969, uh, finally. Well, thank you very much for that, Catherine. Um, Before the... Uh, final curtain closes on our special Christmas edition of this podcast. As always, we have a couple of procedural cases for you, uh, stocking fillers, if you will. So I'll hand over to Eleanor for the final sleigh. Thanks, John. That's right. I have a couple of tremendous cases on privilege for you. In my first case, University of Dundee and Chuck Roberty, the Employment Appeal Tribunal ordered a party to disclose the original version of a report following an internal investigation where the report had subsequently been amended in accordance with legal advice. Without getting into the facts, the legal question in this case was whether a non-privileged document could later acquire a privileged status as a result of becoming a subject of legal advice. I suppose the problem comes from the fact that the versions of the report could be compared which would mean that the legal advice resulting in the changes to the final report could therefore be inferred. Yes, exactly, Carrie. A simple case of close effect. The decision shows that there are limits to the well-established principle that a document will be privileged to the extent that it betrays the content or the trend of legal advice. And for our final case, I have Lorelei Financing and Credit Suisse Securities, a Court of Appeal case concerning litigation privilege. This case looked at whether the identity of those instructing lawyers on behalf of um, a corporate client um, is protected by litigation privilege. I think the High Court from recollection had previously uh, decided that this information is not generally protected by privilege. Is that right, Eleanor? That's right, John. And the Court of Appeal agreed. Now, the claimant's appeal proceeded on the basis that the identity of those authorised to give instructions to solicitors is covered by litigation privilege because it falls within a zone of privacy around a party's uh, preparation for litigation. The Court of Appeal rejected this notion, emphasising that privilege attaches to communications rather than information or facts divorced from them. And I assume we have blog posts on both of these decisions? Yes, there are links in the show notes. Well, thank you, Anna. Before we get on the sleigh and uh, get the elf out of here, uh, do you have a final lesson to teach us? Um, a, a law, or a Christmas law? Yes, John. My law comes to you from the land of wines. 
Um, in late 19th century, uh, when water was considered unsafe to drink in France because it was usually contaminated and provoked horrible disease, a law was passed in August um, 1889 requiring people to systematically add wine to their water in order to sanitize it and um, also more generally to improve the population's health. Is that true or false? Sounds like the sort of thing that Louis-Philippe might have put in place. True. I'll say true. Also, hopefully it's coming back, whether it's true or false. <laughs> All right, well, it's actually false. <laughs> Would have been good, though. Um, they said no. just drink straight wine. <laughs> <laughs> that, that could have been right. They could have been right. But actually, no, wine did have, well, was considered to have medicinal properties and very good for health at the time, uh, but didn't make it to the law, unfortunately. For us. Shame, shame. So um, thank you very much, Eleanor. Um, so, John, how did this episode make you feel as light as a feather, as happy as an angel, as merry as a schoolboy, or perhaps as giddy as a drunken man after mulled wine at um, early in the afternoon? Maybe feel warm and fuzzy inside, Kerry, all of the above. <laughs> very jolly. Yes, and look, thank you very much to our um, wonderful panel uh, we've had here this afternoon. Um, we might put some outtakes um, at the end of the podcast for those who are interested. And thank you, podcasters, very much um, for joining uh, us. Um, we hope you have a wonderful Christmas and um, uh, a very happy and safe uh, new year. Um, for those of you who have stayed on the line this long, um, a Christmas gift perhaps for the stocking. Um, Herbert Smith uh, Freehills has launched a new edition of our Class Actions textbook, uh, class actions in England and Wales. So if you're stuck for a present, um, they are available at all good uh, retailers uh, for a very reasonable sum. But thank you very much to our guests. Yay, thank you. Thank you. And to Erin for making it all happen today. And to Kerry, my co-host. Decision, yeah, know. yeah, correct, John. That's the case of uh, Banca Intesa San Paolo and the Commune. Commune d- Do you want to say that one again? Nailed <laughs> <laughs> it. Correct, John. That's the case of Banca Intesa San Paolo and the Commune. Just say Venice. Commune Correct, John. That's the case of. Banker in the cake. <laughs> <laughs> that's your own language. <laughs> the cake. You said the cake is in the habit of using it. Good one. Simmer down. Take four. Correct, John. That's the case of Banker in Tessa San Paolo and the Comuna de Sorry. Yeah, everyone, simmer down. Cat's crying. Woo! Okay.